0: This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Dr. Robert Malone, it's it's wonderful to be with you in your wonderful studio once again. Thank you for your time.
1: Hey, Peter. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, And uh, I hope your travels here to the States have been worthwhile.
0: They have been. Uh, it's been a, uh, always wonderful catching up with many conservative voices that we sometimes lack in the UK, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> um,
1: you have a conservative party. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, That's a whole other podcast.
0: We do not. If you think Rishi Sunak like is conservative at any <laughs> yeah. form,
1: that's something else. The World Economic Forum is a bastion of conservatism.
0: <laughs> Moving swiftly on, <laughs> I had I had the privilege of going up with you to DC um, and sitting. Uh, with Jan, and you're doing this program with Epoch Times. I call it Epoch Times, always Epoch Times.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a debate as to which <laughs> is the proper pronunciation. I guess even... this is like, this is truly tomato versus tomato. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you've been doing this program Fallout and you went up to do some, uh, some intros. Tell us about that because you and Jan have, have done stuff together for many years and I didn't realize that Epoch Times were, uh, the fourth biggest newspaper thing in the U.S.? Correct. So they're really influential, and we don't really get that understanding in the U.K., because obviously we don't get newspaper in the U.K. But tell us about this Fallout series. So uh,
1: Jan and I have done a number of American thought leaders. I think I have the, um, whether it's good or bad, I'm not sure, the notoriety of having done more American thought leaders with him than anybody else. Uh, and apparently they get reasonable reviews. And so Jan approached me and said, why don't we do a show together? Mm. And this goes back, it must be eight or nine months now. Okay. So we've had discussions on and off and dinners and uh, just lengthy back and forth about what we could do and what it would look like and what the format should be and what we should call it. We've been through at least half a dozen names. They all had to be vetted independently by Epoch Times leadership. Uh, And eventually, you know, at one point I had suggested that we use the term blowback, Mm. but then that was nixed because it had too much CIA overtones, and so we couldn't do that. Uh, So Fallout was the decision, and then we got into this discussion with the folks that are involved in production. Uh, We have a, a, a new producer, and then also a a technical expert, editing expert that has been with Jan all the way through. Irene, that that I think you met. Yep. So uh um we we all set up a chat group and went around and around and around about what we should do for content. And uh the what came out of that was the thinking that uh we often do these various serious very serious content things where it's a a truth bomb of some sort or a big reveal about something to do with the government or uh, certainly the COVID crisis or uh, malfeasance of some kind. And uh, our experience on Substack has been that our our readers really appreciate a break from all the heavy all the time. And so what we've taken to doing on Substack is – Interjecting with much lighter pieces about homesteading and marriage, and uh, a lot of of more accessible topics that aren't quite so controversial or divisive, and we get a lot of positive feedback from the from a subsection of our readers, and so the suggestion was, well, why don't we do this with Epoch Times also? Is combine a heavy hitting segment like Something that is a truth bomb, uh, with some more lighter stuff uh, that might involve uh, farming. Well, the, uh, the truth bomb. was young likes horses.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Jan, Jan, uh, and Cindy, uh, his wife, uh, who also works for Epoch, uh, have a history of writing. And Jan, as a, a, a sincere pole, remembers that uh, the. Polish Hussars were once considered some of the best equestrians in the world uh, in this military unit that they had cavalry. Uh, so, so he kind of uh, um, identifies with that. So uh, that's that kind of has gelled into the format. We have some other little things, uh, you know, the truth bomb segments, the homesteading or home life, or Caris uh, calls it home Malone. Uh, uh, is is uh, becoming a mainstay. And in that, we, we might talk about chickens and eggs or we might talk about nutritional supplements or other aspects of healthy living. Uh, time has shown that one of the topic areas that uh, really resonates with virtually all audiences is health. Mm. Uh, it's the two big topics in broadcasting, I'm told, are health and sports and I'm not much on the sports front, so uh, health it is, plus I'm a physician. So that's how it kind of came about, this format. And we're dialing in some other things, a uh, segment having to do with the most ridiculous headlines. Uh, we're asking for feedback from from uh, viewers uh, and on people online on X, et cetera, through social. So that's that's kind of the general outline Is is we're continuing to focus on what we think are hot topics that are undercovered, things that corporate media is afraid to touch or has been dissuaded from touching, uh, and going a little bit deeper below the headlines. You know, it's easy to read, here's the facts or whatever the approved narrative is, uh, whether they're facts or not is often debatable. But, uh, you know, you read you read these kind of two-dimensional descriptions of what's going on, particularly in D.C., and it it doesn't really enlighten you much. You don't really comprehend what's going on. You're somebody who lives in the politics, and so you often understand, at least in U.K. politics and increasingly in American politics, what the backstory is, but most people don't. So that's, that's the idea, is to kind of bring that to life and to bring uh, hidden, uh, uncovered aspects of key events uh out so that viewers can get a better understanding of what's really going on. Um
0: I want to get on to some of the attacks um you've had as as you've spoken out over the last three years. But I think one of the questions people may have, or maybe are told to have, is that all this conversation about the story of COVID, how it appeared, that's yesterday's news. Move on to something else. But right. from your point of view, why is it important to have that down on the record?
1: The uh, COVID facts. Mm. Uh, a number of reasons. There, There is uh, culpability here. There, It's more than mistakes having been made. There was an aggressive cover-up that went on. And a lot of these actors that are involved in that are still involved in global health and promoting things like the pandemic treaty and the international health regulation modifications and a lot of other related agendas, uh, digital passports, et cetera. So I think revealing and documenting what these same players have done, you know, notably the CCP, the CCP interacting with American intelligence and other American agencies, that's, that's important to get to the bottom of uh, and to document. The issues of the vaccine injuries, the nature of the vaccine injuries, uh, how did that come about? That has profound implications going forward, not the least of which reason is because this is being considered a vaccine platform and this, uh, particularly this messenger or modified messenger RNA technology, is being advocated as a universal vaccine platform. And we still haven't resolved a lot of the toxicity types, characteris- characteristics of those, prevalence, severity, uh, longevity. Uh, and we also have the perversion of international norms in regulatory affairs that has occurred here and uh, is still not being acknowledged. So I think it's important to understand what has happened and document what has happened because there's a lot of malfeasance that has gone on and the same actors are busy um, continuing to engage in this same type of behavior or even extensions of it as they seek to uh, exploit public health for agendas that go far beyond just public health as we've seen over the last four years so uh, and, and then there's the vaccine injured uh, who have been gaslit and censored and uh, um, forced underground Uh, their existence denied, and yet they still have their damage. And the only way that we're going to get governments or the medical establishment to, uh, to agree to compensate and seek methods for mitigating the damages that have occurred to this subset of vaccine recipients in particular is to force the acknowledgement of what these damages are, how prevalent they are, and that there are these damaged people. One of the things that has surprised me as a vaccinologist as I've come into this uh, last four years is, is I have encountered multiple people who are vaccine injured or whose children are vaccine injured that I never encountered before. I didn't really know they existed. There's so many social pressures to uh, prevent these people from having a voice. And I wasn't aware of how serious the problem was. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm convinced now is that this is a significant problem. It's only a um, minor fraction of those that receive the products, but it seems to be growing, particularly in the United States where we have this very aggressive, Um, uh, multi-shot pediatric vaccine schedule that seems to be driving, uh, whether it's central nervous system inflammation or immune system damage or multifactorial, hard to say what it is, but there's no question that we're having children damaged by these protocols. And yet there is this concerted effort to deny that these damages are occurring and not and to basically attempt to delegitimize the parents that are observing that they've had these damages. So uh, again, that that feeds into this same thread that uh, unless, as a society, or as a as a uh, uh, protest group, unless we're able to uh document in a rigorous way and uh publicize what these parents, their children, uh, young adults, you know, the myocarditis story, and there's so many others, have been experiencing, uh, we're never going to break through the denial. One of the things that's really been troubling has been the functionally collusion of the medical complex in the uh, denial of the damages that have occurred. So how are we going to Break through that, unless we confront what has actually happened. How are we going to break through the propaganda censorship complex that is promoted by pharma uh, to keep uh, the average person from being aware of the risks associated with these promoted products? So, I I think there's a it's there's a lot of reasons why this still matters. Uh, And then there's kind of the politics of it and the potential liability as we're heading into elections in Europe and the United States. Uh, And the implications are profound that we have governments that are uh, willing to force the population to accept a product that is not truly safe, nor is it effective. Uh, And how how does that come to pass? Uh, And what can we do about it so that it doesn't happen in the future?
0: Well, that question, I had many questions for you as we drove up and down uh, to D.C. And you humored me on all of them. Mm -hmm. But one of them was accountability. And unless, to my mind, unless you have justice, then it's very difficult for healing to happen, for the country to come together. That huge split of those who do not trust the information they're given from mainstream media from big pharma for government and those who love it and, and want more of that. So is I don't see any way you can move forward and have uh have justice whenever big pharma seems all powerful. Do you see a way past that power block that big pharma has on I think every sector of society?
1: So that's a deep question. Uh um and it's, and it's something that a lot of people are still in denial over. In the United States, our problem is perhaps more severe, I'm not sure, than it is in Europe. In the United States, we have allowed pharma to advertise on television and all other media outlets. So they aggressively promote their product. I've heard from Canadians and Europeans coming to the United States, they, they're shocked at what they see in American media in terms of the promotion of pharmaceutical products. Uh, and what that does is it generates enormous amount of revenue and that's compounded by a decision that was made at the same time when there was allowance congressionally for this type of advertising, which occurred, uh, with uh, basically one of the key advocates was Teddy Kennedy, just to roll back. Uh, and, um, so there was, uh, some Agreements made having to do with American health care systems that eventually matured as Obamacare uh, or the Affordable Care Act that included a, dis- a agreement with pharma, some sort of a quid pro quo, in which it was agreed that uh, the United States government would not aggressively negotiate for pricing, which is the norm in the UK and in Europe. And so As a consequence, here in the States, we find ourselves often paying many times more for the same product that you might get across the border in Canada. This is one reason why there was an active pharmaceutical importation uh, business model operating for a number of years. Here in the States, it seems to have died down uh, during the COVID crisis, but uh, basically Canadian pharmacies shipping drug into the United States at a fraction of the cost of what... Particularly, seniors or people that are economically stressed would have to pay for their pharmaceutical product, uh, and that's the consequence of this agreement, wherein uh, the government said, "We're not negotiating. We're not. We're as a policy, we're not going to aggressively negotiate with you for patented drug pricing, uh, and we're going to allow you to uh, market directly in a very aggressive way uh, that is not the norm throughout the rest of the world." Uh, in exchange for your going along with, uh, you know, paraphrasing with the terms and conditions of the Affordable Care Act and uh, the Medicare and Medicaid programs. So we've been living under that system. And one of the problems is that it generates a huge amount of revenue for pharma. And so the pushback is, well, what's wrong with capitalism? Right? Uh, so they make profit. That's what they're supposed to do in a capitalistic society. What you learn in terms of the practical Implications of this is that you have an industry here that historically has been willing to cut corners, put push the margins in terms of their marketing activities. Uh, you know these strategies of directly marketing to physicians, with salespeople coming directly into physicians' offices, um, holding uh, paid seminars where physicians will go to a vacation hot spot and take a few hours of training about some topic area, which is interleased with uh, promotion of their pharmaceutical uh, and then come back. And of course they're incentivized then to, uh, to prescribe this even for instance, if there happens to be a generic product. So we have this industry that's very willing to push whatever limits e- exist, whatever boundaries exist on its marketing activities and Uh, one of the things that the industry has learned is that they can take this huge revenue stream that they're now capturing and use it to functionally fund American elections. So uh, a strong case can be made that to a very substantial uh, degree, the American electoral process is now funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So you have... You know people from the levels of school board all the way up to the POTUS president of the United States that are, um, have a conflict of interest, I think is the gentlest way to say it, or the appearance of a conflict of interest because, uh, they're partially dependent on pharmaceutical industry money for, uh, funding their campaigns. And so, uh, that results in a situation in which. Uh, Congress and the political cast becomes very wary of placing any restrictions on pharma, holding pharma accountable in any way. And uh, your question is, can that be resolved? Uh, personally, I don't think that that stranglehold over American politicians in the political process can be resolved until, um, until somehow you mitigate this uh, huge influx of cash, of profit. And the problem is that as soon as you go there, then you're walking right down the pathway to socialistic practices and price controls and everything else. Uh, And so what could you do? Oh, I know, let's nationalize the pharmaceutical industry. Well, that's the road to hell. Uh, And that will absolutely be anti-competitive uh a case could be made that what really needs to happen is to enable more competition within the pharmaceutical space because what's functionally happened now is with these um, extremely burdensome regulations that most small to mid-size pharma innovators have to encounter and they're not really prepared for it uh, that that creates a uh, a multi-year barrier to entry that, that results in enormous amounts of capital requirement to meet the, the criteria. And so in a, in a strange way that famers favors big pharma, big pharma has the capital, has the infrastructure um, and has the uh, relationships, interpersonal relationships and business relationships with the FDA and other agencies and key players in the FDA, so for them it's just another cost of doing business. For the smaller innovator, it's extremely burdensome and time-consuming, uh, and destroys the timeline. Timeline, which means that it dis- as you're developing your product, your every day that you spend uh, in in the product development pre-marketing loop. It's a day less that you have patent coverage. Uh, And so then suddenly your uh, opportunity to recoup your investment shrinks as the length of time that it takes to bring the product to market increases. So uh, it puts the small guy in a real bind. I, I think, I suspect that the only way out of the woods is going to be in some way to increase Uh, the opportunity for smaller innovators uh, to bring products to market. And there's ways to potentially do that, like making it so that you can uh, um, bring a product to market that is not fully vetted yet. That for instance, doesn't have the background of large phase three trials, which are so expensive. Uh, and that you capture that information in real time uh, once you start marketing. Mm. So there's been some movements towards that, and the Right to Try initiative is one example of that, uh, so that the, the small innovator can start recapturing some cash flow. Uh, there has to be rigorous informed consent, uh, but uh, for the for the patient who is suffering a condition that's an orphan disease or doesn't have an optimal treatment, uh, that might be a pathway to allow innovators to come in but uh, so long as we maintain the system as it is and there's that much cash flowing into such a small number of companies that have functional monopolies as a consequence of government regulations largely uh um, then, then we're going to be faced with this problem that uh, this industry has basically a huge slush fund that it can exploit in order to advance its own political and regulatory objectives. And uh, there's no way around that. You, know, you, can, you can vote for the person who uh, vows to not take pharmaceutical industry money, Bobby Kennedy, an example. Uh, but um in the face of modern marketing, which is to say propaganda mm. capabilities, uh, the the ability of a honest broker to uh, effectively play in in the American political landscape is really constrained because if you if you you know f- friends and family and small donations and you you spin up, Hundred thousand dollars, maybe a million dollars, but your competitor uh, for election is says, "Hey, um, bring it on!" And suddenly they've got a war chest of ten million coming from big business. They can blow you out of the water. So I, you ask a hard question: how to how to solve this conundrum that is really a problem of uh, of availability of Cash in excess of needs for uh, innovation. I mean, if pharma's justification has been that oh, they need all this profit, they need all this money because it's such a high-risk industry, and uh, so they need to have financial incentives and sustainability because only one in ten are hits. But that's that's the old model. Pharma doesn't really innovate anymore. What they do is they buy up uh, small innovators that's that's the business model, and they outsource most of their uh um personnel expenses to uh, contract research organizations that's that's the other new wrinkle in this, so they they don't have permanent staff mm. except for core staff and marketing so that's long winded, but i it's a real problem and and I don't know uh an easy way to get through it. The the companion problem is the revolving door and the tight relationship between the regulatory affairs world and pharma. So FDA and pharma is just one, FDA and and CDC, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a problem throughout the U.S. government. One of the things that we have is uh, we call them dual function agencies. And there's a whole lot of them. USDA is an example of this. FAA is an example of this. Agencies that have a mission to both promote an industry and to regulate the industry. And uh, not surprising, the promotion of the industry often seems to win in the executive branch, uh, financially and otherwise. And so you end up with, you know, CDC, what we've seen over the last 40 years as being a classic example. They're supposed to uh, oversee and monitor vaccine safety, but they're also supposed to promote vaccination. And the promotion of vaccination seems to be a much more important uh, administrative task than uh, the oversight and monitoring of safety, as we've seen with bears, et cetera. So, again, a really complex, um, evolved ecosystem. It gives rise to the power of pharma. Uh, and And I don't know how much of the global dominance of pharma that we're seeing you see it in the European Parliament, uh, with uh, what's her name, uh, von Leiden, mm. uh, having this kind of chummy chummy relationship uh, with the vaccine contracts, et cetera. Um, is is it is that, um, basically the the surplus profit from the United States being turned on the world? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I I'm really uncomfortable with with what what I've learned over the last four years. And this used to be my industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what I did for a living. I'm a regulatory affairs expert. I'm a clinical research expert. I'm a discovery research expert who's worked at this interface of small pharma, big pharma, uh, government, uh, and academia my whole career. Uh, And yet what I've seen, kind of like what Paul Merrick's journey has been, what I've seen now has, has, Made me aware of how the ideals that I was taught, the norms that I was taught, uh, have been compromised mm-hmm. in a wholesale fashion, with apparently no regrets. Uh, and that's that's at at the fundamental level. That's what that and the bioethics of the failure to provide informed consent are the two things that bother me most.
0: If you like what we do sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsovoke.org. Thank you for listening.